Proverbs chapter 15, we come back to this sort of uh, workshop on wisdom we've been looking at one by one, all these different Proverbs, no particular order in the topic that they're coming to us in and just kind of bouncing back and forth. Uh, the first proverb here, certainly uh, above all else, uh, even if you tune out by the end of it, boy, this one, I'm sure you'll get to practice before the week is over. And it's already Wednesday, but I guarantee just knowing human nature, you'll need this one certainly before Friday or by the time we get together again next Sunday. He says, Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1, a soft answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger. So here he speaks to us wisdom in regards to how we interact with other people and interpersonal relationships, particularly during those times where we can tell in a conversation or perhaps in some interaction we're having with someone when the intensity is ratcheting up, when the agitation is becoming more intense to the point where actually he refers to someone being in a condition of wrath and a condition of anger. And again, remember James tells us in chapter one, and James is much like, uh, as I allude to that, let me just say as a sidelight, to me, James is much like a New Testament version of the book of Proverbs. In the Old Testament, we have Proverbs, which is this Holy Spirit workshop on wisdom. And then when you read James in the New Testament, the five chapters of it, it's much like just a New Testament version of just practical, common sense wisdom uh, in regards to a lot of what's given to us. And one of the things we get there regarding wrath is the Bible tells us that each of us should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. And it says, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That anytime we go from anger to wrath, God says, look, there's never anything righteous that's going to come out of that. <laughs> Only things that become unrighteous in the way we behave or conduct ourselves and it just displeases God and we act unrighteously towards one another in our interactions when that's beginning to happen. And here he refers to helpful advice, God's wisdom, how we are to navigate or respond when someone is not only angry, but when we're telling, uh, recognizing, and kind of sensing that they're kind of, in a sense, coming at you with sort of a fierce and intense anger, and you can just sense the wrath is starting to build, or maybe it's just been completely unleashed in this volcanic eruption of emotion and words that are being exchanged. And he tells us in verse 1 that when someone comes against you or I with fierce or intense anger or wrath, that we can determine what unfolds by how we respond to them. And here he says to us in verse one, the advice is that a soft answer, because that's not the natural tendency, right? The natural tendency when somebody gets angry or they raise their voice or they start insulting or just letting their flow of volcanic lava come out of their mouth and just you know accusing or attacking and just really chewing you up with your words, the natural human tendency is to take it personal, to defend ourselves, to give, you know, our strong reaction and response, and we want to kind of just, you know, react back towards them, you know, kind of anger for anger, and it's just that's just a natural human tendency. So it does take the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, as well as God's supernatural wisdom to go by in a way that is very unnatural, which is to do the opposite of the way we would normally respond when anger and wrath begins to build 
and that is to give a soft answer towards someone who is exploding in angry wrath, rather than, he says, the harsh word, because that's typically the natural response, which just tends to stir up anger. And so he says, look, when somebody comes at you instead, try and defer to that soft answer. In other words, just speak in a gentle and a calm spirit. The idea is control your tone. If somebody's in wrath or anger, they're screaming, they're hollering, whatever, a gentle spirit, a calm tone can diffuse a very angry and irate person. You know, sometimes it's even just a matter of just letting them, like a firework, burn themselves out. You know, for the few of us who were recently this past Saturday morning out at the Atlantic City outreach, uh, we certainly had a, a visitor among us uh, who, by you know, very clear means, uh, was in the condition of a wrathful, angry attitude, just screaming and yelling. Uh, and there are two options at that point. You can try and strong arm somebody like that and argue and dispute with them and so on and so forth. And typically, if that happens, then the tendency is to get drawn into the ring and the emotions of all that. And then you have a harsh reaction, and that just kind of puts gas on the fire. And that's kind of what he refers to here in verse 1 in the second half when he says, a, a harsh word is going to just stir up more anger. So if you try and get harsh and, you know, firm in response and then you're getting firm and they're trying to, you're over talking them and, and then all of a sudden you, it's just like putting gasoline on a fire. You just stir up the anger all the more. Or the other option is just to try and maintain self-control and a composed attitude and a gentle spirit. And, and what you find is even if somebody's shouting and angry and yelling, ultimately, if you just kind of continue to maintain a gentle, soft attitude with them, eventually they just kind of... It's just sort of like a firework. They just kind of, the fuse just runs out eventually. You can only shout so long. I mean, what, what more is there to keep shouting at after a while? If I'm not dialoguing back with you, you know, at a certain point, they just kind of start to get diffused. And again, this is just an important thing to learn how to de-escalate anger. That is a life skill, I tell you, that, uh, that the blessing of law enforcement officers, they learned that because you have to know that in law enforcement work, how to de-escalate angry, irate, highly emotional individuals, would the God that all of us could get some of that kind of training, and God kind of gives it to us right here in his word, because the same thing happens in our job place, in our family relationships, it happens in your marriages, not in mine, of course, and it never needs to take place, but just a very wise word of how to approach, you know, we can choose when the anger stirs up to give a soft word, or we can be harsh in our tone or response, and then we can just stir up more anger and make things get more volcanic and erupt into greater problems. So great proverb, just to take to heart, to live it out, and put it into practice. Again, we don't just want to be hearers, but doers of God's word, and there's a good place to be a doer of God's word. Verse 2, he says, the tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, but the mouth of fools pours forth foolishness. So notice the idea here is what people say, the Bible says, reveals if they are behaving either wisely, excuse me, or foolishly. He gives a comparison or contrast here. Wise people, he says, they will use knowledge in a right way. In other words, wise people may have knowledge that is information about something, they may have facts on a particular matter. They may be educated or be knowledgeable regarding a particular subject. 
and they, what they know, he says, they don't just share what they know, but notice he says they share what they know in a right way so that it's received by those who they're trying to convey it to. Notice he says that the wise person, verse 2, the tongue of the wise, how you can tell they're wise, is they use their tongue not just to, to share knowledge, but to use knowledge rightly. That is to share it in a right way so that there's a receptivity. Because if you just share knowledge in a harsh tone or you try and jam facts or ideas or what you know down someone's throat and you don't do it the right way, they're just going to shut you off. They're not going to listen, right? They're just going to become very unreceptive. And so it's very important that when we do speak to someone and we want to share what we know with them, whatever that may be, that we do it in a right way. So he says, wisdom learns how to speak in a way where you share facts, knowledge, information, but you do it in a right manner. It's very key. And you'll have a lot more receptivity, God says, when you do it in a right way. It's much more received in an easier manner where foolish people, he says, they just speak foolish things. And the idea is they go about doing it in a foolish manner. He says, verse two, the mouth of fools, you can tell someone's foolish, the mouth of fools, notice that the language pours forth foolishness. The idea is they just open wide and they just speak in a way where they don't speak purposefully. They don't pay attention to what they're saying. They just ramble and rattle on, whether it's a nervous chatter or just their, you know, kind of just they put their brain in neutral, their mouth in gear, and they just start pouring forth and saying things. But a lot of times what they're doing in foolishness is they're talking too freely. And they're just saying whatever's on their mind or whatever they're feeling in the moment. And he says that sometimes is just a characterizing mark of foolishness in the way that they're speaking. They're just opening their mouth and talking a bit too freely and saying things in a foolish way and that are really just not helpful and just become counterproductive. Verse 3, he then says, "...in the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. So the idea here in this proverb, it's wise, God says, to realize that the Lord is aware of everything that's happening right now, as well as the Lord is aware of everything that has happened or has transpired. And the wise person recognizes, and they always keep in mind that reality, the Lord is aware of everything that's happened. He's fully aware. Nothing's hidden from his eyes. There's nothing that goes on, good or bad, the Bible says, that somehow goes unseen by God, unknown by God, unwrecked. God knows exactly what has happened, and God knows exactly what is happening right now. The Bible tells us in numerous places, everything Hebrew says is laid naked and bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And here he says, the eyes of the Lord are in every Place. You know, Moses made this mistake in the Old Testament, if you remember, when he got angry and he let his anger get the best of him and he ended up, you know, murdering and then trying to bury a human being. And remember, it says Moses looked this way and then he looked that way and then he murdered and tried to hide his evidence in the ground. And the problem is, is he looked right and he looked left and it looked like humanly no one was looking, but he forgot to look up. Because the reality is, as it says right here, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, even out in the middle of a desert. Well, nobody else is out here. Nobody else sees what I'm doing. Nobody else sees what I'm doing sitting in my car looking on my phone right here. Nobody else sees me, you know, on my computer screen doing this here. Nobody else is aware of what I'm doing here behind closed doors or, you know, the Lord is. 
There is nowhere that you can be as a human being where the eyes of the Lord are not fully engaged and he's not watching, he's observing. That's a part of the nature of God. The Bible says that he is omniscient. The idea is he's all-knowing. He knows everything, and the idea is he's aware of everything. He sees everything, and it's just an important thing to remember. Wise people realize the Lord is aware of everything that's happening currently, and he's aware of all that has transpired. Now, that has a twofold effect. As he says, he's keeping watch on both the evil and the good. That means this. That's a sober warning to bring healthy fear into our lives in a good way for those who are doing evil, those who are currently doing evil, they should be soberly warned and concerned that the eyes of the Lord are fully aware of the evil that they're currently doing. In the same way, if someone has done evil and they're just thinking that because they haven't got caught yet or because they haven't been exposed yet, or because God has not severely dealt with in discipline or judgment for the evil thing they've done yet that somehow they got away with it or God didn't see it or God winked at it, that God says, no, just that sometimes the wheels of justice, just they kind of grind slowly sometimes. But it's to be a sober warning that you can't do evil and God not see it. Now, on the other side of that, that's also to be an encouragement to be hopeful that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. And again, so that means if you're doing what's good and nobody else sees the good thing that you did and you think, man, I, I mean, here I am and you know, I, I, I tried to have integrity in this private situation or this personal matter. I did what was good and right and nobody even knows that I did that. Nobody's even aware that I did that good deed or I, you know, I, I did this kind thing or I helped in that way and there was no public attention drawn to it or you know, nobody was aware of it. There was no thank you or whatever. Look, the Lord saw it. And because the eyes of the Lord are aware of that good thing that you did, whether small or something large, the reality is you should be encouraged. The Lord will honor you for that and he will reward you because he sees every good thing that you do. And he sees every good thing that you're doing in each situation. So that's also to be a hopeful encouragement to us as well to never think that anything we do good is in vain. It's not. It may seem in vain. It may you know, feel in vain. But the Bible says that not to grow weary in well-doing for in, in due season we'll reap a harvest if we don't give up. So keep doing the good thing that you're doing. You do the good thing no matter what, no matter anybody sees or not, because the Lord sees and the Lord will honor you for doing what is good and right in your personal life, whether anyone sees or not. He's watching and sees it. Verse 4 says, And a wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it, that is in the tongue, breaks the spirit. So the idea here is healthy speech can be life-giving in its influence. He says a wholesome, healthy tongue and healthy words, that's the idea of wholesome, healthy, is a tree of life. So healthy, wholesome speech and its influence can impart life. It can renew strength. It can sustain like a tree of life. The tree of life in the Bible pictures at times bringing healing. In the book of Revelation, it speaks of the tree of life and its leaves and fruits that it bears that actually bring healing to people's lives. So again, that's the benefit of good, wholesome, healthy speech. It can have those wonderful benefits. Where in contrast, he says, but perverseness in the tongue, the idea is we might say polluted speech, tainted in some way with a wrong heart. Polluted speech, in contrast, can be toxic. It's very unhealthy. 
And when somebody speaks from a polluted heart, their words and their speech can be toxic to the degree where the idea is it can poison. And it breaks, he says here, a person's spirit in a harmful way and can be very damaging and be very destructive. So wise people understand what and how we speak can either restore hope, the Bible says, like a tree of life, or if we speak incorrectly, it can actually crush someone's hope. And we can break someone's spirit with just a wrong word, a perverse, crooked, polluted statement. He says a perverse tongue can literally break a person's spirit. We can crush someone's dreams and just demoralize somebody and totally discourage them in a very damaging way. Verse 5, he says, And a fool despises his father's instruction, but he who receives correction is prudent. So we come back to one of these somewhat, we've seen repetitious themes. This is certainly one of them, the benefit and importance of a younger person receiving guidance, direction, even correction from whether it be their parent, their father, or some parental type figure, you know, an authority father-like figure, someone who's older passing on direction and correction at times to the younger generation. And so we see here this theme coming up again and again. It's almost as if God's trying to make sure we don't miss it. That's why he keeps re-emphasizing it to make sure we grasp it. And certainly one of the things we see as we recognize is that in verse five, he tells us, that a fool despises his father's instruction, which implies that part of the responsibility of the father is to provide instruction. <laughs> the idea is that that is the role of a father. A father, if not being negligent, should be providing continuous instruction. That that is the role certainly of a mother and a father in raising children, but the father should take that primary role of making sure to provide instruction, to train, to guide, to teach. And that happens all throughout the journey of life. Again, just being older, having more life wisdom and experience, that is the role of the father to offer guidance and even correction, which is a part of instruction and guidance as well. And he says here in verse five, whether someone is your, you know, your father or a father figure or just an older person trying to help in that way, he says here that to not appreciate the value of that kind of instruction, to despise it, to get angry about it, to detest it, to kind of be resistant, oh, whatever, just, you know, that kind of attitude, God says here, that's foolish. That's just, that's just youthful arrogance. That's just an attitude of pride that you're not appreciating that older person imparting the benefit of their instruction, and it's foolish to refuse and dismiss it. Now, in contrast, he says, as well, as we've seen many times, to be teachable in heart, he says to be receptive in attitude, verse 5, the one who receives correction, that's a teachable heart, you're receptive to even being corrected. He says, the person who's in that attitude and takes advice to themselves, that person is prudent. The idea is they're thinking wisely about the future. They're thinking beyond just the present moment where maybe their pride is being insulted because they're being corrected. And they're thinking about the future saying, yeah, you know what, this stings because right now you're kind of you know piercing my pride. But the benefit of this is I'm realizing what you're telling me because I'm considering the future this hurts now, but it's going to help me tomorrow if I face the same thing, or it's going to help me next week or next month or next year because I'm going to gain a lesson out of this, and I won't repeat the same mistake again, and I can try and do better next time, and so that's that prudence of having a receptive spirit when someone's offering correction. Verse 6, he says, and in the house of the righteous, there is much treasure, 
but in the revenue, the earnings, the income of the wicked is trouble. So here we see a, a good and an enjoyable life. God says, if we're using wisdom, a good and enjoyable life is not measured by just financial wealth. Now, that's hard to pass that idea along, especially in our American culture, because we quantify a good life, an enjoyable life, by many a times financial status and financial wealth. And God says a good, enjoyable life is not measured by financial wealth. God says it's actually measured, you might say, by domestic health, by whether or not you have a healthy household, whether or not you have a healthy personal life, whether you've got a healthy family life. Notice what he says there. In the house, the household, the family life, the home, in the house of the righteous, the one living right with God, living right before God, he says, there is much treasure. The idea of great treasure there means wonderful riches and in various ways, right? Typically, when you open a treasure chest, there are all types of different things in it, gold and jewel and silvers, and there are multiple. And so that's the idea. God says, when somebody lives righteous, they live right with God, their household is going to be blessed with abundant treasure, great wealth. And it, it may be financial wealth, but it also may just be the wealth of a really good and wonderful marriage and really wonderful family relationships and a, a healthy family rather than a, a broken and chaotic family and just the health of being able to get a good night's sleep at night and the, the health and the, the treasure of perhaps just learning how to manage money wisely instead of being you know a house under tremendous stress because of debt and overspending and again all these different ways that God can bring you know treasures of a healthy wealth into a life that have nothing to do particularly just with monetary surplus and so he says here in the house of the righteous there's much treasure but notice in the revenue of the wicked he says is attached to it trouble. So those, notice the Bible has said this many times already in Proverbs, those who live wickedly, they may be able to accrue financial increase. You know, if you rob, you cheat, you steal, you deal drugs, I mean, you can get rich. You can do wicked things and get a lot of revenue and get a lot of income. But God says the reality is when you do what's wicked and you accrue financial revenue or income, he says, what you find you inherit with that is also a bunch of trouble. Because, right, you can get rich selling drugs, but you're also probably going to get in trouble selling drugs. And you could take that and play it out. And not, you, you can, you know, get wealthy by behaving wickedly and selfishly ignoring your family and just chasing your career or robbing or cheating or dealing improperly and unethically and what you do in your work to just increase your wealth and increase your revenue. But then you're going to find that trouble is going to be attached to that. You're going to have trouble keeping up with it. You're going to have trouble managing it. You're going to have to spend you know, money getting out of trouble because of the way you, you know, went about getting it or whatever. And so God says here, look, much better. Just live righteous and let God bring his health and wealth, if you would, into your family in, in a way that's much more beneficial rather than just thinking revenue and financial increase is the primary thing. Many people are very wealthy, but they're very miserable. And their life is full of trouble. So much better to just live righteous and have the treasure of a good, healthy personal life and family life above all else. Verse 7, he says, The lips of the wise disperse knowledge, but the heart of fool 
does not do so. So notice, wise people understand, he says, the importance and value of sharing helpful knowledge. So again, how can you tell if somebody's a wise person? They're looking for ways to impart what they know in a helpful way to other people. He says here, the lips of wise people, they look for ways to disperse, to share, to pass around knowledge, to help other people to be more equipped by having that same knowledge that they have. And he says, but the heart of a fool has no interest in that. The heart of a fool in many ways is not interested where the wise person realizes to educate is to empower. And so he says, this is the wisdom of the person who's living wisely. They use their words to educate and to empower others as well. Verse 80 then says, and the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. So the idea here is notice God's greater concern is not what our religious works are, but whether or not we truly live righteously. And when you read through the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and some of the minor prophets as well, you take notice that many of the people in the days of Israel, they were still going through all the religious routines. They were making their sacrifices, making their offerings. And what angered God many times is they were incredibly religious in practice, but their hearts were completely off track. They weren't in right relationship with God. They were living in personal sin, or they were involved in you know, idolatry, or they were doing immoral and ungodly things, violence and sexual sin. And, and, and there, were, there was all this unhealthy reality regarding their relationship with God, but yet they were still coming and bringing their sacrifices. And they were still bringing their offerings. And it was almost as if as God was looking at that, he was saying, look, your sacrifices, many times God would reprove the prophets. He said, they disgust me. This is disgusting. It was almost as if God was looking at it, seeing like it's a greater offense. How dare you live completely in rebellion to me in relationship, and then you're going to just try and come dump a sacrifice on me? It's almost as if God, like God, well, you think you're buying me off? Do you think somehow you're going to bribe me that, oh, it's okay, you can continue to keep living in your immorality as long as you pay me off by bringing me a sacrifice or throwing money in the temple treasury or you know punching your time card by showing up at the temple periodically? So again, to live wickedly but make great religious sacrifices, thinking that atones, he says here, that actually is an abomination to the Lord. It disgusts God. It disgusts God. He would rather us get right personally First and foremost, when someone's living righteous and with integrity and sincerity, he says, in contrast, their communication, notice, just their prayer. They don't even have to bring a sacrifice. God said, just their prayer alone. Boy, I just love the prayer of a pure-hearted person. Again, just what does God care about most? That we're just simply in right relationship with him. That's what gives him the greatest pleasure. That's why verse 9, he kind of says in a similar way, the way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. So verse 8 the sacrifice of the wicked, that is religious activities of people who live wickedly, sinful living, but religious sacrifices, that's disgusting to God. Now he says the way of the wicked, that is just the way they live in wickedness and sin, is an abomination to the Lord. It, it disgusts God when he sees the way that wicked people do what they do and the way they go about doing those things. It's a great displeasure to him. Verse uh, 10 or 9, he says, but he loves him who, notice, just follows righteousness. What does God love? He just loves to watch somebody follow a righteous path. 
God says, that, I, I love that. Just to see someone not live wickedly and just to follow the way of righteousness, just doing what's right between me and them, God says, that's what I love. I could care less about the sacrifices. I mean, we have to rem- God really doesn't need our sacrifices or our offerings. It's a privilege to give any form of sacrifice or offering to the Lord, whether it's the devotion of our duty or ministry or to give to the Lord financially. Uh, That's a privilege, something we get to do as an act of worship. It's not like God needs those things. What God wants is us to give him our heart, to give him a heart that's in a right relationship with him and to follow his ways. That's why the Bible tells us to obey is better than to sacrifice. God wants our heart to be right above all else. That's what he truly loves. Verse 10 says, Harsh discipline is for him who forsakes the way, and he who hates correction will die. So the idea here, if we forsake what we know is the right way in life, then God says wisdom should tell us that we should be aware that harsh discipline is a part of the future down the road. God says if you know the right way, and you choose, notice, not to err, but he says, forsakes the way. The idea, there's conscious decision here. There's full awareness of what's going on. He says, he who forsakes the way, the way that they know is right in some area of life or relationship with the Lord, he who forsakes the way, wisdom should tell them, harsh discipline is on the end of that pathway. Again, why? Because the Bible tells us that because God is a good father, says that the Lord chastens or disciplines those that he loves. Hebrews 12 tells us that. We saw that in an earlier proverb. And again, not judgment, he says, but harsh discipline. God has no problem being firm and harsh in his discipline if that's what gets us off the wrong way and back on the right way. And he says, look, if somebody becomes overly stubborn, he who starts to hate correction, I mean, they just totally detest it, he says that person is going to end up dying. The idea is someone who strongly detests being corrected is going to just plow forward in their own way when they know it's the wrong way, and they're going to blow through even the harsh discipline like an angry little kid. You know, any of you perhaps, have you ever spanked a child before, and after you spank them, they go, hmm. You know, and I had girls. I mean, it was a little more difficult to get them to that point there, but maybe you had a son, you know, and you, you whack them or they laugh at you when you think, whoa. And again, that's the idea there is just blowing through the discipline. And God says, if somebody gets like that, where they don't even care about the discipline and they're just pushing past it, God says they are on a path of self-destruction if they just continue to plow forward and ignore correction in their life. Verse 11, hell and destruction. The Hebrew is literally Sheol, the place of the dead, and Abaddon, which is the place of punishment are before the Lord, how much more the hearts of the sons of men. So notice, he says, verse 11 here, the idea is God's fully acquainted, the Bible says, with the realm of the dead, as well as the brutal realities of eternal punishment and and, and suffering. And he says, if that's true, and God's aware of the place of the dead and the place of punishment and destruction, he says, how much more is he fully acquainted then with the hearts of men? Again, the idea is that God is fully aware what is going on in the condition of the heart of every person he's created. You know, the Bible tells us, John chapter 2, that Jesus himself, it says, didn't need anybody to tell him anything about people. It tells us in John chapter 2 that Jesus knew all men, and he knew what was in a man. 
And so again, God knows what's in my heart in the same way God is fully acquainted and aware of these very real spiritual realities, hell and eternal punishment in the place of the dead. He says, be aware, God, how much more is he also aware of even what's going on inside of our hearts? Again, God sees the heart condition of every one of us matters greatly to him. Verse 12, he says, a scoffer does not love one who corrects him nor will he go to the wise. So the idea here is those who don't want to hear wise input, but prefer, like we just talked about, to kind of stubbornly persist in their evil doing and their foolish ways, they're going to purposely, the Bible says here, they're going to seek to avoid anyone who's wise. Because they're a scoffer, because they mock at their wrongdoing, they think it's no big deal, they're just going to stay on their stubborn path of disobedience, he says what those kind of people tend to do is they tend to avoid interactions with wise people because they don't want to hear counsel. <laughs> they don't want to hear judgment. And sometimes you can tell somebody's not in a good place or perhaps you're not in a good place when you find yourself, perhaps if you're on a wrong track, avoiding people that you know, mm, if I go talk to him, he's probably going to say something wise. If I go talk to her, they're probably going to give me some counsel. So they actually, he says, look what he says. He says, people like that, they won't go to someone wise. They, they actually try and avoid people, and they try and do what they can because they want to stay on their track of, of kind of mocking their wrongdoing, uh, and they don't want someone to correct them, so they actually avert uh, those who would actually speak truth into their life. Never a good place when someone's doing such a thing. Verse 13, he says, in a merry heart, or a happy, joyful heart condition, makes a cheerful countenance, a, a happy face, someone who's happy in countenance. But by sorrow of the heart, the exact opposite, the spirit is broken. It seems the idea here in verse 13 is that the condition of someone's heart is always eventually going to end up being evidenced. You know, I mean, we can sometimes try and contain ourselves, you know, but the reality is the Bible says whether it's containing one's joy or containing one's grief and sorrow and brokenheartedness, eventually it just kind of surfaces in the countenance, right? I mean, eventually you just, you can see it in somebody's face. Somebody can try and hide that they're sad or they're brokenhearted, but eventually you just, you, you kind of see it in their disposition. It's in their demeanor. And you can tell, and this is the idea here. He says, a grieving, broken heart over something, it's going to be revealed. That person's going to have a somber, sad attitude. Again, we see that in Nehemiah, even a pagan king. Remember he said to Nehemiah when he was all distressed and worried about the walls broken down and the gates burned with fire and the people in distress there back in his home city, and he heard about it, and he goes into the king's presence, and he says, what's the matter, Nehemiah? You've never been sad in my presence before. And the king, he picked up on it right away. He couldn't hide it. You know, so again, it's really somewhat foolish of us and just fake and hypocritical to think somehow we can hide our brokenheartedness or hide our sadness or vice versa, that when we're, you know, joyful and happy, again, it's going to be revealed because you can't contain that excitement, right? When you have a merry, excited heart over something, it's going to just show. So wisdom realizes it is virtually impossible to hide outwardly what's going on inwardly. You might as well just be real. <laughs> Don't even try and contain it. Just... Be what you are and let people be aware of what's going on. That's the true condition you're in anyway, whether in great heartache or whether in great joyfulness. Verse 14, the heart of him who has understanding, he says, seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feeds upon foolishness. So a person's heart condition 
And their maturity, you might say, is going to dictate what things they become interested in. Here, this seems to be the idea. The mature person with, he says, good understanding, the person who has an understanding heart, that is the mature, wise person, he says, they are going to be someone who's always seeking to learn and know more. Because they're mature, they realize, hey, life's not a party. Life's a schoolroom. I want to learn some more. I want to become better educated. I want to know more how to know how to do what's right, avoid what's doing wrong. And that's a mark of maturity, always learning. Having a teachable attitude, the mature, wise person is always a constant student. They always want to continue to keep learning. It's a mark of maturity. Where the immature and the foolish person, he says, they only have an appetite to feed on foolish and worthless things. He says the immature, foolish person, you can tell because they just want to feed upon, that is their appetite, is just for indulging more foolishness. Or if I could say it this way, they just like indulging dumb stuff. They just spend their time indulging dumb, worthless things, filling their mind with more foolishness or occupying their time with just you know idle, childish foolishness. And he says, that's an immature person because they're getting no value or no benefit out of those things. Verse 15, he says, all the days of the afflicted are evil, but he who is of a merry heart, a cheerful heart, has a continual feast. Now, interesting proverb here. It seems the idea here is kind of trying to imply in verse 15 that when a person is dealing with affliction, which speaks of suffering, when a person is dealing with suffering, all their days, we might say, appear to be evil. In other words, when we're dealing with suffering or affliction, our days do tend to be really bad, right? Like, like they're going wrong. And when you're in the middle of suffering, it seems that you just, as you're going through a hard time or you're suffering and you're dealing with affliction, it just seems and appears like every single day is just another evil, bad day on the earth. And that's just kind of a, a, a struggle that we wrestle with in the middle of affliction. We see Jacob saying that very thing, you know, when he had no idea that his son Joseph was still alive and everything wasn't going wrong. But when he heard the news and he thought his son had been murdered when all his brothers had done it, just sold him away. Remember, he said, all things are against me. In other words, everything in life is horrible and everything is ruined forever. And in that moment, in his affliction, that's really how Jacob felt. He had no idea that God was actually working a wonderful plan, and in time, God was going to do something incredible, and he was going to be reunited with his son, and God was going to save the nation and protect the messianic line. But in his affliction, it felt like every day was just horrible and just bad, and sometimes we feel like that. Now, in contrast, he says, he who has a merry heart, a joyful attitude, for them, it seems like every day is like a continual feast. Right When things are going really well, it seems like the abundance and the good days are just going to last forever, and there's never going to be an end to them. And this is how people sometimes get themselves on track too. Even sometimes people get themselves off track with this financially, right? Because they, wow, lots and extra and surplus, and they just think that's going to last forever when the reality is, is it rains eventually, right? We talk about a rainy day fund. That's the idea. <laughs> it may seem like you're feasting now, but the next season around the corner, you may have seven years of feasting and then seven years of absolute famine, and we just don't know. And I think the wisdom of this proverb here is this, as wise people realize life comes in seasons, right? The affliction, the suffering, in those moments, it seems like the suffering and the bad days are going to last 
forever. They're not. Be encouraged by that. Wisdom tells you life comes in seasons. You may be in a dark season. You may be in a hard season. You may be suffering, but life comes in seasons. Take heart. Don't become despondent. You walk through the valley of the dark shadow of death, but, but there are green pastures in the next season. And, and suffering doesn't last forever. Now, on the other side of that, if you're in good and abundant season, always realize life comes in seasons. Enjoy the green pastures. Roll around in them. Enjoy the still waters. But be aware in maturity, don't be naive. Life comes in seasons, and there may be a future season when then some hard things come and difficult things come. And don't overreact and freak out when then you find yourself dealing with affliction or hardship. It's just life. Life comes in seasons. Affliction, abundance. Affliction, abundance. And it's wise to recognize that neither lasts forever. It comes seasonally. Better is a little, he says, verse 16, with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with trouble. And better is a dinner of herbs. There's your verse if you like to be a plant-based person. Where love is than a fatted calf with hatred. So here both Proverbs kind of convey this same idea that sometimes the Bible says wisdom knows having less materially, but knowing you're right with God, knowing you're in the center of God's will, knowing you where God wants, wants you to be, sometimes that is the better and the best place to be, even if that means only having a little or having nothing but a dinner of herbs. When maybe at one point in time you were feasting or maybe your neighbor's feasting or maybe you're saying, I wish we were feasting, but instead we're just eating a dinner of herbs and water. But God says, but if you're right with God and things are well with your soul and things are okay with you personally and you're in, in living in the fear of the Lord and, and you have love, he says, verse 17, for the Lord and love among your household, he says, much better to be in that condition than it is to have the fatted calf and to have everything materially and financially and instead have a household where you have nothing, verse 16, with trouble and verse 17, with hatred. And again, this is a very wise principle God is giving to us that having material wealth, yet a life with various troubles, how is that good? Oh, I've got tons of wealth. My life's got tons of troubles. I got tons of wealth. But me and my spouse hate each other. I have tons of wealth, but everybody in my life hates me. God says, is that really wise? Wouldn't it be much better, God says, if necessary, just be right with God and have good relationships, sometimes having only minimal resources, yet a loving, healthy, happy home life? God says, that's way better than just having more stuff sometimes. And the wise person recognized that being in right relationships and focusing on that you know, relationships, loving relationships, being in right relationship with God, having love in your household, much, much better than having a fatted calf, but yet trouble and hatred in your life. Verse 18, he says, a wrathful man stirs up strife, much like our other proverb, but he who is slow to anger allays contention. So again, wise to understand the way we engage in situations when there's tension, God says it does matter. Don't ever overlook that. The way we engage in situations when there's already tension, it does matter because he says a wrathful man will just stir up more strife, more angry, you know, uh, you know, frustration, division, dispute. Those who give in to anger and then let that dictate their behavior and speech are just going to stir up more anger. 
and they're just going to cause more division and more strife, where those who use restraint in their emotions, he says, can diminish anger, they can allay contention, and they can solve problems, and they can bring an end to the situation. Proverbs chapter 26 is going to talk much about this idea there uh, about not putting a log on the fires. And the idea, he says there, is where there is no wood, the fire goes out. And that's the idea here. We can put more wood on the fire by stirring up more strife, or we can stop putting logs on the fire, and that's a way to defray and to fuse tension so that it doesn't keep going forward but kind of burns itself out. Verse 19, he comes back to another repetitive theme. The way of the lazy man is like a hedge of thorns, but the way of the upright is a highway. So last I checked, nobody likes running through a thorn bush, right? So he says, here's the problem. When someone is lazy, the lazy person finds that they, they, they find their way is very difficult. The way of the lazy person is difficult. It's hard to get forward. It's like running through a, a hedge of thorns where he says the contrast, the person who's choosing to live right and responsible, that is diligent, they find a highway, a pathway for progress. So again, we can choose. Do we want lots of painful experiences and do we want life to be hard to make progress? God says, just be lazy and you'll have lots of painful experiences and it'll be really hard to make progress. He says, do you want to find pathways for progress and find it's easier to get ahead? God says, be diligent, <laughs> be responsible and do what's right. And you'll find it's much more like a highway where you can make some progress in life. Makes a big difference. A wise son makes a father glad but a foolish son despises his mother. Here the idea seems to be, I would say you can, you can tell a lot about a person by the effect, the way their life has upon their parents. And this is the idea here, that a person's effect upon their parents. He mentions both the father and the mother. He says, wise children who live well, they bring great pleasure to their father, right? Because that's what a father takes pride in. That's the idea. I'm so proud of my son. Look how good of a, of a life he's living. I'm so proud of my daughter. I mean, and the idea here is you live wise, you live well, you, you make your father proud. And you bring that pleasure of being a proud father to their heart where he says the other side of that, the foolish son who lives poorly makes poor decisions. He says here, they show they despise their mother. That is, they show they have no concern or respect for their mother whatsoever. Why? Because in the same degree a father is super proud when his kids do well, a mother is demoralized and brokenhearted when her son lives like a fool or when her daughter just ruins her own life. Because of that tender, compassionate heart of the emotion of the mother, and he says, someone who lives foolishly, they show they have no regard because they simply break their mother's heart and they don't even care about it. And he says, you can tell a whole lot about a person by just simply seeing the way they relate to their parents. Verse 21, folly is joy to him who's destitute of discernment, but a man of understanding walks uprightly. So the idea to those who are foolish, who have a little common sense, you know, they find enjoyment in just doing more dumb things. They just continue in folly, and somehow they find that that's actually something that they find pleasurable, where a man of understanding, they realize, hey, life's not a party, and I got to live rightly and be understanding about how I walk in the path that I take. Verse 22, he says, without counsel, plans go awry, 
but in the multitude of counselors, they are established. So much like a prior proverb we saw, this idea is repeated again. Again, God wants us to get the theme to understand it, that seeking good, wise, healthy counsel can determine, the Bible says, failure or success. Whether plans go awry or whether plans are established and you succeed, he says, sometimes that is greatly dependent upon whether or not we take the time to get some input and we get some advice. So here God says, you can determine to a great degree whether your plans end up being successful and you succeed or whether your plans fail and go awry and get off track simply by your willingness, he says here, to seek out some input, to be receptive to counsel, to talk to some other people, to to regard the value of their advice and their input and to hear their views and their different perspectives and then make good, well-informed decisions and your plans can be established where he says, in contrast, when we disregard the value of that and we don't seek out any input and we just go with our ideas alone and we think that we know we don't need input, we don't need guidance, I got the right view. And he says, you're going to find if you do that, your plans often are going to go awry. Because everybody's got blind spots, right? And none of us know everything. And there are always things to be learned by others. And so the wise person realizes there's a multitude of counselors that can help establish my plans where without counsel, my plans go awry and I get off track. Verse 23, a man has joy by the answer of his mouth and a word spoken in season, how good it is. The idea here seems to be conveying that it's an enjoyable thing to have you know, a, a person who has sort of a a joyful spirit, a joyful countenance, and kind of conveys the idea that it's an enjoyable thing to interact with someone who has a joyful countenance, and they just bring blessing and refreshment. And one of the ways that can happen, he says, when a word spoken in due season, how good it is. So the idea here is when a helpful, timely word is spoken in a situation, and, and it's exactly that thing. It's kind of the, you know, the right thing you need to hear at just the right time in just the right way. A, a word spoken in season. And that can happen two ways. Either we can be on the speaking end of that or we can be on the receiving end of that. And both are important. And sometimes God uses us to speak a word in season. And it's a really good thing. We say the right thing at just the right time that somebody needed to hear. And other times, God lets us be the benefactor of that on the receiving end where someone just speaks a timely word in season. It's like, man, that is exactly the thing I needed to hear at just the right time. And it's kind of just that word spoken that's really good and helpful right when we needed to hear it in our lives. Verse 24, the way of of the life, the way of life, excuse me, winds upward for the wise Notice that he may turn away from hell below. So the idea here is when we live wisely, we find our way is focused on pursuing the upward path and we're, we're heading upward when we're walking in the right way of life. That winds upward where he says the benefit of if you're going up, it's going to keep you away and turn you away from going downward and going in the opposite direction. So again, God just wants us to live wisely so we can be moving in an upward direction and he can turn us away from hellish and destructive things that would just bring us downward in our lives instead. Verse 25 says, the Lord will destroy the house of the proud, but he will establish the boundary of the widow. So here the idea is how the Lord will deal with those who have an arrogant 
stubborn heart, the proud, he will deal with the arrogant by bringing them down. And it doesn't matter what they have built in their proud, arrogant spirit and how they're operating in pride and arrogance. He says the Lord has a way of destroying any proud action and activity. God has a way of breaking and humbling the proud. And in the same way, God mercifully, graciously has his way of protecting those who are weak. And the widow in that day, understand, widows and orphans, they were the picture in the culture of the weak and the vulnerable and those who were easily taken advantage of. And he says the Lord will protect and sustain the weak by taking care of and doing for them what they're powerless to do for themselves. And maybe the proud is plowing them over and building their life. And God says, I have no problem destroying the proud and protecting and taking care of the widow, the vulnerable, and the boundaries of those who tend to be weak and can't help themselves in a situation. Verse 26, the thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. So again, even the things that the wicked person is thinking about, the, the, the filth that's in their mind, the thoughts of the wicked, he says, it's disgusting and abomination to the Lord. But the words of the pure, that is the contrast, those who are pure in heart and pure in mind, their thoughts and their words are actually pleasing to God because it blesses his heart that their heart and mind is pure. Verse 27, another great proverb to just kind of memorize and live by. If you ever find yourself overly ambitious for material gain, he who is greedy for gain troubles his own house, but he who hates bribes will live. Now, certainly greedy for gain can be financial, absolutely, but sometimes we're just greedy for gain in other ways too. We just want to get something. We want to get ahead. Maybe we want to pursue you know, th this career path or, or gain or make advancement in anything. And he says, if you don't have moderation and you become greedy for gain, he says, just be aware wisdom tells us those who do such things and become greedy for gain, they end up troubling their own personal household. And again, we have all seen this, right? We have all seen people chasing more money, chasing career pursuits, and they bring trouble on their marriage. They bring trouble on their household. They're an absent father. Their kids go awry. And, again, and so he says, look, be careful of this. Be on guard. He who's greedy for gain oftentimes ends up troubling their own household, but he who hates bribes, and a bribe is a, a way to get rich quick or to work. A, if you hate that kind of stuff, he says, it, you'll live. That is, it'll be preserving. It'll be protecting. It, it'll keep you on track. Just do the right thing at the right pace, and you can avoid a lot of painful problems. I refer you as well to 1 Timothy 6, a great New Testament companion to exactly what verse 27 is telling us here in this word of wisdom. Verse 28, the heart of the righteous studies how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours forth evil. Now, notice with me, if you would, verse 28, the heart of the righteous studies, notice I have an underline, how to answer. Proverbs talks a lot about what to say and what to answer. Now he says how to answer. So please take notice of that. God says wisdom takes into consideration. It's not just what we say or what we answer in a given situation, but how we answer. That is being diligent in what you say and how you go about saying it. He says, pay attention. Don't be quick. Study 
how should I answer? I assure you, that'll help you in plenty of your marriage conversations. That question comes, it's not just what you answer, it's how you answer. Free advice. Verse 29, the Lord is far from the wicked. Why? Because he doesn't want to be involved in wickedness. So when somebody's doing wicked things, God's going to retract because he doesn't want to be involved in wicked things. But he hears the prayer of the righteous, the exact opposite. When somebody's doing what's righteous, God hears and he wants to be involved when people are doing what's right. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart and a good report makes the bones healthy. So again, when somebody brings a good news, good report, it just brings not only health to the mind and to the heart, but it brings even just, a, again, a sense of physical health. The whole person feels healthy when good news is shared in the same way bad news can really demoralize and bring poor health to a person. The ear, of the, of the ear that hears rebukes of life will abide among the wise. Back to the same idea again. He who disdains instruction despises his own soul. Again, you don't care about your life if you despise listening to instruction, but he who heeds rebukes gets understanding. In verse 33, our chapter concludes, the fear of the Lord, respect for the Lord, is instruction of wisdom. And notice this great phrase, verse 33, and before honor is humility. Before honor is humility. Notice the pattern. Humility comes first, then honor can come afterwards. This is a biblical principle. The wise person understands it is healthy to experience proper humility in order to prepare ourselves to be honored properly. And when that gets dis discounted, when that gets ignored, if someone gets honored before they develop humility and character, watch out, major problems. You're going to have a Napoleon on your hands. You're going to have somebody that's an absolute nightmare to deal with. And so God says, before someone is honored in some way, it's always best if humility is set into their life first. So again, God, I feel like you're humbling. I feel like you're humbling me. I feel like you're not a bad thing. Maybe God wants to honor us in the future. <laughs> again, what was Jesus's life? It was the cross before the crown, right? It was humility before the honor of the victorious resurrection. Let's stand together.